Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. Today, Congresswoman Brenda Lawrence will join the show to talk about her decision to retire this year, the scramble to replace her, and the impending Supreme Court confirmation process to replace Justice Stephen Breyer with the court's first African-American woman. Then we're going to talk about inflation and whether there's any relief in sight for the high prices that we're seeing everywhere. That's next on Detroit Today. But first, the news from NPR. Welcome to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm really glad you have joined us today. One of Michigan's most prominent political figures is stepping away from public office after this year. Congresswoman Brenda Lawrence has served Michigan's 14th congressional district since 2015. She was the mayor of Southfield for 14 years before that. She is Michigan's only African-American member of Congress, and she announced her retirement last month after we saw the redraws of our congressional districts because of decennial redistricting, and after we saw that map contract by one seat. We are going from 14 members of our delegation down to 13. But that doesn't mean that Brenda Lawrence is slipping out the back door quietly. She's working on several key pieces of legislation that she hopes will become law before her time on Capitol Hill is over. Here to talk about her decision to walk away from Congress and what she hopes to accomplish in the meantime is Congresswoman Brenda Lawrence. Brenda, welcome back to Detroit Today. It's so good to be back. Good morning and Happy to talk to you. Yeah, no, it's great to have you here. So tell me first, uh, what went into the decision that you made uh, last month to make this your last term in Congress and to to retire after the end of this year? Well, you know, it it was so many things that led up to it. I had um, been thinking about it for over a year. Uh, four years of the past administration was challenging at best. Um, it January the 6th had a direct impact. I've talked to you about that. Mm-hmm. I lost two sisters in 12 months, and I'm the youngest of four siblings, and I'm the only one left. Mm. Um, my husband looked me in the eye and he said, this is our 50th wedding anniversary. You've been doing this for 30 years. When is our time? (laughs) So it was just, you know, someone said death by a million cuts. It was just continuous um, issues. And I feel very strongly that when you go into public service, which you know I've done for 30 years, school board, city council, mayor, and now Congress, Mm -hmm. that you are there to serve. And you are, it's not... um, uh, it's not a you're not in you know given a throne and a and a dynasty. You are given an opportunity to serve, and so I'm excited to continue to serve. But if I could sum this up, you know when you read a really really good book, yeah, and it's, it's so good you can't wait to turn the page. Mm-hmm. I'm at that point because I want to continue to serve but I want to serve in another capacity. So you'll be seeing me and hearing from me as, as we go uh, next year when I transition to the next chapter of my life. Yeah, yeah. no, I know you well enough to know that you're not just going to disappear, uh, that you'll, you'll <laughs> no. find something really important and, and, and really productive uh, to do. So, so I wonder if you can talk just a little uh, about being the only African-American member of our congressional delegation right now, uh, 
making the decision to leave and and where you think that leaves us in terms of African-American representation in Congress, given the, the, the change in the maps. Obviously, we went from 14 to 13 districts, but because we had uh, this Citizens Commission redrawing, the, the, the lines look very, very different than they did before. So I, I want to get your reaction to, to where, where you think we are with, uh, with making sure we have a chance to, to represent ourselves in Washington. It was never lost on me that I was the only African-American standing in the halls of Congress, which were built by slaves, and the 55 members of the entire Congress who were African-American. It was never lost on me. Mm. I have one of the most diverse districts in the country, which I loved. I, I love the fact that I represented America. I have one of the only cities in the United States where the entire elected body in the city are Muslim. Uh, I have the largest Jewish population in Michigan. I have a majority African-American district. I have every type of way you want to worship in America I have in my district, including Church of Scientology, mosques, temples, churches. So when I made this decision... It was only if I had a way to see that there could be an African-American states person elected that will go to Congress, understand their responsibility to the people of this country, and uniquely be aware of the challenges of the black community. I will be endorsing. Everyone will know who my candidate is. And I'm going to work very hard to get that person elected. Mm, mm. So, so of course, the, the redraw shuffled things quite a bit and put, you know, I mean, we normally see some some changes in terms of where people live and where they might run. But I, I don't know that we've seen in, in Detroit before this kind of shuffle where Rashida Tlaib, who is the other member of Congress who represents a part of, of Detroit, has decided to run in essentially what would be your district if you were running again, leaving open uh, the, the, the 13th, uh, the new 13th, uh, which is uh, the district that would include her home at, at, at this point. Um, what do you think of that decision by her to run in what essentially would be your new district? And then where does that leave uh, the possibility for representation in the 13th? Well, my district um, was divided up among three existing districts. So obviously I had Oakland County, which now has um, Levin and Haley Stevens running for. My district was divided between the 13th, the the um, 12th, and the um the district that they're running in. Mm -hmm. So every member, I'm not going to waste my time or energy deciding why another member makes that decision. She chose what was best for her uh, and her strategy, and she made that decision. But I am concerned about the lines because it takes the black population and divide it up in a way that there is a fear that we could have um, no African-American representation. But I'm a firm believer. I won mayor of Southfield when when the city was 70% white. Mm-hmm. Um, African-Americans, and we see it all around the country, uh, Lauren Underwood, um, others who are African-American in a district that has maybe 2 or 3% black. So we can serve anywhere. It's standing up, showing, com- campaigning for, working hard, and convincing the voters that they can trust us. So I know that there is an African American that uh, you'll hear from me soon, who I feel can step in that 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 position and serve in the 13th. And the 13th does have um, mostly residential part of Detroit. Mm-hmm. But it also has Down River, 
And um, there is an opportunity to um, just continue to have African American representation in Congress. Yeah. So, so you know, I I, I think that um, when you look at the new maps, I, it's hard for me to see how an African-American candidate would not win in the 13th. I mean, there, there, certainly there are, there are scenarios you could imagine that, 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 would, that would prevent that from happening. But they seem, they seem very slim in, in terms of the chance uh, uh, that they have. Um, but, but, you know, the, the bigger question is whether, I guess, the maps overall do a sufficient job of giving African Americans, you know, the, the the opportunity to to select people who look like us to to, to represent us in in Washington, I, I wonder what you think of that, uh, you know, that sort of analysis of of the job that the Citizens Commission did. Is there enough for uh, representation of especially the the, the largest African American city in? Um, in the state. Uh, there are a lot of African-Americans, not just here, but also in uh, the suburbs around Detroit now. In fact, there are more African-Americans in the suburbs than there are in the city of Detroit for the first time. So so did they do enough to make sure not just that there would be uh, an African-American successor essentially in the 13th, but that we would have opportunities in other places? So I I disagree with the line um, when it comes to African-American representation. Mm -hmm. Had I chose to run, I would have ran and would use my record and just the political prowess I have to win the seat. Um, However, when you look at how the seats were drawn, especially on the state Senate level, where majority, minority, or voting rights districts to me, the whole process just did not fulfill that responsibility that that act requires the commission to adhere to. It is a lawsuit that has been filed, and mm-hmm. if you look around the country, you'll see lawsuits being filed around the country, and the courts are withholding, I mean upholding, the um, lack of adherence to the Voting Rights Act and to ensuring that the districts drawn represent the, they call it common interests, where people who are together that have common interests and concerns. And I don't think our commission did a good job with that. Hmm. Um, I'm talking with uh, Congresswoman Brenda Lawrence, Democrat from Southfield. She represents Michigan's 14th district in Congress. We're talking about her decision to retire after uh, this year and what will happen uh, when she is not a candidate for one of the two districts uh, that uh, that uh, that split up Detroit and and the inner ring suburbs. Um, we want to talk about uh, policy in a bit, uh, Supreme Court nominations and uh, green uh, energy, uh, something that she's been really, really focused on. But we want to hear from you as well during the conversation. What do you think of her decision to retire after four terms in Congress? Uh, How important is it to you, if at all, for there to be an African-American member of Congress from Michigan? Uh, Brenda Lawrence is the only African-American member right now. Uh, If, uh, if, if things don't go the way that uh, we might expect them to do, to go in the new 13th district, uh, we might end up with no African-American representation in Congress. Is that something that you feel like is, uh, is okay? Or uh, do you feel like we should have done things differently through the Citizens Redistricting uh, Commission? As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Facebook or to Twitter and put uh, comments there, and uh, we'll work you into the conversation. Let's start today with Harry in Sterling Heights. Harry, welcome to the show. Brenda, I'm very proud of you. I'm a Persian graduate. Uh, Doughboy does well, and that's great. And uh, I'm proud of what you've done. And coming from Seven Mile, the Ryan area, uh, you've accomplished a lot. And uh, I'm one of the directors of the reunion committees for Persian 
and I have a Pershing Penitentiary. If you give me your address, I'll mail you one. <laughs> <laughs> I will. I will. <laughs> Harry, we will make sure you get uh, you get the address to. Uh, to well, do you that. know, I I um I am going to write a book about my life, and it'll be entitled "The Little Black Girl from the East Side of Detroit." Right, wow. Went to Corville, Nolan, and Pershing, mm-hmm. and um, you know, it. Those of us who are doughboys, uh, we know the grit of our neighborhood, the the fight of our our family. <laughs> and we were one of the first areas in the city where black people built homes. Um and on DeQuinder I was my uncle was one of those. It was unheard of to build a home. Mm-hmm. Um and our school was grew up diverse, which gave me the opportunity to know that my greatness was not defined or limited by the color of my skin because I knew white kids who were not as smart as, smart as me, and I knew black kids who were smarter than me. <laughs> so um, it really defined us. So it's good to hear from a doughboy. Yeah, yeah. Harry, appreciate the call and, uh, of course, uh, the, sh- the shout-out. Um, I, I want to talk uh, just a little bit about... Uh, the plans that Stephen Breyer has to retire as well. President Joe Biden says he's going to nominate a black woman to fill that seat on the court. Of course, that person would end up being the first African-American woman to serve on the court uh, if if she's confirmed. But uh, that announcement, of course, has brought about a, a fair amount of backlash from Republicans who say, it doesn't make sense to to say up front that we are going to fill this seat with with an African American woman that that's somehow uh, inappropriate or or some sort of quota. Of course, uh, for a hundred years or more, two hundred years, we had uh, a quota for white men only on the court. Um, but but I want to get your reaction to to what they are saying about the prospect of uh, a black woman on the court. You know. Ronald Reagan, who um, everyone knows was a Republican uh, president, promised to nominate a woman to the Supreme Court, and he did with, you know, Sandra Day O'Connell. Sure. This is no different. Um, How is it that we as this great country have never had an African-American woman to serve on the Supreme Court? And I have to note, and I know this is very partisan what I'm saying, but I'm hearing this only from one side of the aisle, that we had nominees brought forth by the Trump administration where the the National Bar Association had ranked them as unqualified. I am absolutely stoked and excited about the women who are being considered, they are stellar, um, stellar candidates. They know their trade. They're qualified. They are rated as qualified by the uh, National Bar Association. And this, our court, who, who protect our Constitution, our laws, our policies, and for me, it is, I like to define it as the third leg of our democracy, mm-hmm. our legislative branch, our executive branch, and our judiciary. And we have an opportunity to have it look like America. And guess what? It'll be the first time there were four women on the Supreme Court. Right. And think about that. 51% of America is represented by females. And we will have four women on that court. Don't you think parity, don't you think representation is defined by how we in America select those people to represent us? And so I'm excited about this. And to anyone saying that um, black women would already be on the Supreme Court if we picked the best qualified. Right. If it was about merit, there wouldn't have been exactly. only white males for more than more than uh, 200 years of, of the Republic's life. I mean, that's that that is that is the fundamental American quota. Right. The assumption yeah. that the only people who deserve 
those kinds of posts uh, are white and 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 male. I mean, the idea that we now want to say, hey, uh, the, there's lots of other people who need to be represented, uh, is not a, that is not a quota. That is that is taking down the quota that has existed forever. Okay, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, uh, we're going to continue this conversation with Congresswoman Brenna Lawrence, and we will begin to hear more from you on the phones and on social media. Lawrence in New Baltimore, Anthony in Southwest Detroit, you're up next. If you want to join them on the phones, 313-577-1019 is the number. You can also go to Facebook and Twitter, put comments there, and we'll work into the conversation. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. WDET is your connection to what's happening in Detroit. WDET is your place for open dialogue about the issues that impact you. Stay in the know. This is WDET FM, Detroit's NPR station. This is Detroit Today on 1019. WDETM Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. My guest is Congresswoman Brenda Lawrence, a Democrat from Southfield who represents Michigan's 14th district in Congress right now. That's a district that does not exist on the new maps that uh, we will operate under for the next 10 years because Michigan lost uh, a congressional representative in uh, the redistricting process. Uh, Congresswoman Lawrence has also said that uh, she does not plan to seek re-election. Uh, this time, which means that uh, she will leave Congress as the only African-American member of Congress from the state of Michigan. Real questions about uh, who will replace her and whether that person uh, will be able to continue the representation that African-Americans have had uh, in Congress uh, for a really long time here in southeast Michigan. We're talking about that, but we're also talking about uh, some of the policy questions that uh, Congresswoman Lawrence is uh, grappling with in Washington. She is retiring, but uh, she's got a lot of work ahead of her this year, a lot of things she wants to get done. Uh, we want to hear from you about her decision to retire and about the future of representation here in Michigan. Uh, give us a call, 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET uh, Facebook page, put comments there, uh, or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today. Let's go to Anthony in southwest Detroit. Anthony, what's on your mind? Good morning. I just think it was great that we had Representative Lawrence with such a knowledge and experience with the U.S. Postal Service, and I think that'll be kind of lacking in the Congress after she leaves. So <laughs> I think that was great. Yeah. But, um, I also want to ask if there are any votes you know, taken which you might uh, regret or uh, change your mind or vote the other way now if you would rethink it. Uh, great question, uh, Anthony. Now that we're thinking about your career and and the things that you've done, uh, Brenda, is there something you voted for or against uh, that that you would go back and and do differently? I I can't recall any of that uh, that I didn't vote for. It breaks my heart. I tell you what, my biggest concern: George Floyd, um, Justice and Policing Act, sure. not. Passing the Senate is something that I feel my job was not completed. I I voted for it and sent it to sent it to um, the Senate, and it's just sitting there. And then the other thing is the um, the Voting Rights Act. My goodness, mm-hmm. um, when we went through what we went through on January the sixth, where um, we saw our democracy under attack, and then afterwards saw all these local states pass laws um, to make voting more difficult. I That breaks my heart because those are bills that are extremely important to our democracy. And I always like to remind people, when John Lewis was alive, it was such an amazing thing to serve with him. He he told me one time in his frustration, he said, why do you think they work so hard to keep us from voting? Because they know if we vote that we will have accountability. Mm-hmm. We will make sure that this country 
hears us and that if you don't vote, then they have permission and they're empowered to exclude you. And so those are two bills. I still would vote for them 100%. I am just disappointed that they have not passed yet. And I am excited, though, today I will be on the floor as we vote for postal reform. Many people know I had a 30-year career with the post office, Mm -hmm. and I went in saying I was going to protect and um, make sure that the Postal Service was given stability and the funding that they needed for, you know, it's the post office is mandated in the Constitution. Yes. And as we all know, it's gone through some really hard times. Just like we want to save our auto industry, we have to look after the postal, um, the post office. And I will be voting and my committee led postal reform, and we will be doing that today. So I'm very excited about that. Yeah, I wanted to give you a chance to talk just a little about uh, that bill, that postal reform bill. What would the legislation do, and why do you think why do you think we need it? Well, the thing that a few people understand is that the funding of the post office is comes from the sale of stamps. It has nothing to do with our taxes. And so what we've seen is that um, it is an example of making sure that the post office has increased transparency, required them to develop an online dashboard with national and local level service performance, which I heard so much about during the pandemic. The concern, I mean, in America, the Postal Service has the highest approval rating of any other federal agency. Mm-hmm. And when we start seeing those those um, performance gaps, I mean, my phone was blowing up. Wait a minute. What are you doing to the post office? I'm not getting my mail. What's going on? So the transparency and also we want to make sure that we eliminate an unfair pre-funding mandate, and it will allow the the agency to enter into non-postal revenue agreements. To give you an example, we at the post office can do hunting license. We could do um, um, have an ATM. Mm-hmm. In some of the rural communities, that's the only business in the entire city is the local post office. So could you go there to um, have an ATM, which will generate revenue for the post office? Can you go there and get licenses? Can you go there and get your passports and all those things? So it will give them the opportunity to have um, non-postal revenue, and we had to give them that power because they are regulated by uh, the federal government. Yeah, yeah. Okay, Brenda Lawrence, uh, Congresswoman from our 14th Congressional District here in Michigan. It's always great to have you here on the program, and I'm sure we will talk to you before uh, the end of uh, the year and the end of your time in Congress. But uh, but we, of course, also look forward to, to what comes next for you. I, like I said before, I know it will be something exciting and important. But uh, thanks for being with us today. Thank you. And I just want to say to everyone, these 30 years that I've been in public service has been just an amazing life. The opportunity to meet, interact, and serve so many people of all walks of life. I'm so grateful. And my book will reflect my gratitude and the amazing experiences I've had. Yeah. No, we really look forward to uh, to that book as well. Okay. okay. When we come back, we are going to talk about the economy and inflation with University of Michigan economist Justin Wolfers and Michigan State University economist Charlie Ballard. If you've been to the store lately, you know prices are rising. Any store, grocery store, lumber store, convenience store. Why is that happening? And is it a return to the kinds of inflation that we've seen 
in the years past, or is it just about the confluence of influences right now? We're going to talk with those experts and continue to hear from you next when we come back with more Detroit Today. Today on 101.9 WDET, I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. If you've been to the grocery store lately, if you're like me, you have noticed that things are looking a bit pricey these days, and that might be an understatement. The grocery store, the lumber store, the electronics store, the convenience store, all of them, you go in and things are a lot more expensive than they were, say, six months ago. And it feels like the problem is getting worse. Not only are receipts feeling that much heavier in our pockets, but some products seem to be missing from shelves. There's this incredible supply chain issue. That means we can't get some of the things that we're used to being able to grab pretty easily. Sometimes it feels like the early days of the pandemic again, and it's just something that affects everybody. You probably have less money in your bank account right now because of inflation. And in an election year, there's no shortage of people who will try to tell you who to be mad at for allowing this to happen. But for the rest of the hour today, we want to really dig into what's actually causing all of this and what some of the possible solutions actually look like. Inflation is a word that I think a lot of people use to do an awful lot of work trying to explain lots of different things that are all going on at the same time. You say inflation, no, and people's ears perk up and the hair stands up on the back of their neck. We all understand how dangerous an influence that can be on an economy. But oversimplifying things by calling everything inflation or attributing everything to inflation, I think is a dangerous way to think about the ways that we move forward in the economy. And that is where our next two guests come in. They are both experts on how to think about all of these things. Justin Wolfers is a professor of public policy and economics at the University of Michigan's Ford School, a contributing columnist for the New York Times and co-host of the Think Like an Economist podcast. Justin Wolfers, welcome to Detroit Today. A pleasure to be here. Also with us is Charles Ballard. He is a professor of economics at Michigan State University, joins us frequently to talk about how national and international economic issues affect us here in Michigan. Charlie, welcome back to Detroit Today as well. Good morning, Stephen. Thanks for having me. So, uh, Justin, I'm going to start with you. It seems like easy-to-understand explanations are in kind of short supply lately, but as I said in the open, a lot of people are just saying, well, it's inflation, and that's that's the problem. Uh, but walk us through why we're seeing rising prices on a lot of products in a way that might help people understand how complicated all of this is. Let me go back and actually take you up on people are, uh, are complaining about rising prices and inflation. And, and yes, they are. But what's really important is to note that's their concern right now. It's not about jobs. Um, and so that's a, a measure of the moment that we're in that not everyone, but the vast majority of people who are looking for work are able to find it. Given that they now have a paycheck, they're worried how far that paycheck will go. Um, what's causing inflation right now? Um, in economics, everything comes down to two words, supply and demand. Mm -hmm. um, on the supply side, there's um, you might have noticed we're in the middle of a pandemic and it's a global pandemic. And it's disrupted supply chains all around the world. And so it could be something as simple as a couple of workers turn up to a factory in Asia sick. They're forced to close that factory. That factory is no longer producing chips. Those chips are important ingredients in making cars. And before you know it, what's happened in a single factory overseas is now affecting Detroit. Um, if there are fewer cars, what's going to happen is dealers are going to be less willing to offer discounts. So effectively prices rise. That's the supply side. Mm -hmm. The demand side is um, actually much of the economy is pretty healthy. Not all of it, 
um, but much of it is. Um, and in particular, one thing that's happened with the pandemic is we're all spending a lot less money on services. Fewer people are going out to bars and restaurants, but we're still spending our money, which means we're spending it on goods. And so there's been extraordinary demand for a range of goods from, you know, washing machines to cards um, to home goods. And that extraordinary demand, if it can't be met by supply, pushes prices up. Mm. So, so there are a lot of people and, and I think a lot of people on the right side of the political spectrum who are saying that this is an, a, a problem that we know uh, comes from from government spending, right? That that uh, the massive infusion of cash into the economy um, from Washington is predictable, uh, predictably raising uh, raising prices and things like that, and that that is the the the, the kind of sole issue that we we should be focused on. Justin, I'm, I'm, I would love to have you react to that to that narrative. Yeah, it's one of those narratives that might be true, it might be half true. Um, and it might be not at all true. And so let's go back. The things that drive inflation are supply and demand. Supply is things like, you know, the costs that businesses face, whether you can get goods from overseas and so on. And it's utterly clear what the main supply constraints are right now, and they're all about the pandemic. Um, so if you wanted to blame a government for that, it would be that we're not doing enough to vaccinate the rest of the world. I'm quite sincere about that. If you want to solve US inflation, you want to think about vaccinating the rest of the world. Mm. But if that's not your complaint, and that's not the typical Republican complaint right now, then the part of inflation that's driven by supply is not driven by the federal government. Now, the flip side is the economy is doing pretty well right now. Normally, again, most people have jobs. Most people have incomes. Incomes are holding up pretty well. Normally, that's something we celebrate. The difficulty comes when incomes get ahead of our ability to produce. And so that's the claim that demand is driving inflation. And part of what's driving demand at the moment is there's been very large fiscal stimulus. That large fiscal stimulus, government spending, uh, helped soften the blow of the pandemic recession. But it may have been, by this view, it may have been a little too big. And that's spurring demand for more stuff than we can produce. Mm -hmm. And that's what's driving prices up. Uh, Charlie, you and I talk a lot about uh, the economy here in Michigan. I, I, I want to have you put this discussion about inflation in, in context here. Is it worse here than it is other places? And are there particular factors that uh, are, are um, dynamics of our economy, which is really different from a lot of other states, uh, that, that make it look different here for, for people at the stores? Well, uh, Stephen, I, I would love to say, gosh, Michigan is so much different from the rest of the country. <laughs> but in a lot of ways, we're we're kind of in the middle of the pack. We're we're um, pretty normal in many ways. The uh, last month, they they came out with the consumer price index number, and the uh, difference between the Midwest. And the national was one half of one percentage point for the whole year, uh, which, for me, uh, if you know how the data are collected, that's um, that's kind of within rounding error, at least in my view. I don't think that Michigan is dramatically different, but here is here is what is different: um, the the consumer price index and other price index. They're just an index, and they're based on a particular consumption pattern of, you know, you buy this. Well, if you go to the Bureau of Labor Statistics website that you, and click around a little bit, you can come up with a graph that shows all sorts of categories. Most of those categories, the change in prices in the last year was less than that headline number that you saw um, it, everywhere. Uh, what it is is there is a, a small number of goods, especially uh, energy products, gasoline, used cars and trucks, um, and, uh, and and new new vehicles also. Those some of them have been way above, uh, and so they're the ones that are pulling it up. Mm-hmm. Well, if if you don't drive a lot, the fact that gasoline is high is not much of a problem for you. If you do drive a lot, if you've got a 50-minute-in-each-way commute, 
then that's so so that would really impinge on your budget. So what I'm saying is, it, the headline number is just an index. It doesn't say what any one individual uh, is doing. And before I I close this little riff, I just want to say, uh, if prices are going up by X percent and your income is going up by X percent, um, then it's pretty close to a wash. Right. And we, we do things, especially for our elderly Americans, we do things to try to protect them from inflation. And, and the um, Social Security check got bumped up by the monthly amount, got bumped up by 5.9% um, in an attempt to uh, shield those senior citizens from the effects of rising prices. Yeah. And since many of them don't, don't drive a lot, their their lives will not necessarily be Im- impacted a- adversely. Yeah. So, so Charlie, I also want to ask you about the the particular um, parts of our economy that are different from other places. I mean, you know, our our very strong reliance on manufacturing, right? In general, and and the auto industry in in particular, we do, we know about the supply chain problems they're having in the auto industry, which is one of the things that is. Uh, pushing prices up, uh, right. but 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 what other what what other effects do we see on that sector of all of this? Well, uh, one of the big things that's going on in the auto sector, and uh, unfortunately, is likely to persist for for a while, is the shortages of uh, chips, shortages of semiconductors, uh, and uh, you know when when you buy a car. Uh, what what you're buying is, um, yes, it has an engine and all, but so many things are now governed by uh, electronics. Uh, um, all sorts of data are being passed around your vehicle and displayed on your screen in ways that uh, were just not feasible 20 years ago. But now it's what we've come to expect in cars and trucks. Uh, and we've had a shortage... Um, of of chips uh, for a while, and that's not all due to COVID. Although uh, it's exacerbated by, like everything is exacerbated by COVID. But uh, until we uh, get past that supply bottleneck for uh, semiconductors, it's uh, there will probably be continued shortages. Um, it, it will be hard for the um, the car companies to ramp up production to the level that they would like to because they know that they could sell these cars. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and uh, unfortunately, you've got, in some places, you've got lots of cars just sitting on a parking lot, cars and trucks, waiting for the for the chips. Uh, so um, um, there's a new semiconductor plant being built in Taylor, Texas, that will uh, be online, uh, I think, next year. Um so uh, eventually, I think we'll get past this, but th- that's a big part of the story for the auto industry. Yeah, yeah. We're talking about uh, inflation uh, and the other dynamics that are making the economy a little wonky right now, not only here in Michigan, but uh, all over the country. Uh, if you want to join us, give us a call. Let us know about your own experience with sticker shock, the things that uh, – are much more expensive right now than they have been in recent years. What are some of the things you wanted to buy that you kind of thought twice about when you saw the price tag? Uh, Also, what do you think is responsible for this, and what do you think is the solution to it? 313-577-1019 is always the number here on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to social media and put comments there, and we'll work you into the conversation. Let's go to David in Southfield. David, welcome to the show. Uh, thanks for having me. And mm-hmm. uh, just, I just was wondering, and this is a great show, and let me, let me uh, I wonder what the effect of the minimum wage uh, increase is, because I'm wondering if, 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 if cost is chasing the minimum wage or if the minimum wage chasing the cost. Mm-hmm. When I was uh, growing up, you know, the minimum wage was $1.30 an hour, and everybody seemed to be just fine. Um, when it went to a dollar thirty sixty cents an hour, uh, we didn't really know the difference. And my, I wonder that when you know the way you detect wealth or that you have more money when you make more than the minimum wage. If you make the minimum wage and like everybody else, all the costs go up, but it goes up evenly, and the employers uh, charge more for goods because they have to pay the minimum wage. 
And so the population who's been dependent on the minimum wage never really notices. In addition, they may pay more taxes. Hmm. So uh, I'm wondering if, if there's really, you know, does the cost, because, of course, when I was going along, the cost of gasoline was lower, too. But, you know, is the cost driving the minimum wage up or is the minimum wage causing the increase in cost and inflation, yeah. Yeah. and you wonder if there's. Really I don't a think. Yeah, I, I don't think I agree with you, David, about about the, the idea of of uh, a wage price spiral. But um, but but I think the the, the question of um, you know the, the the real question about what the effect of of higher wages and and I guess a higher minimum wage might have is 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 interesting. Justin Wolfers, uh, what's your reaction to that? Let me take it in two parts. The first is to think about the minimum wage. Um, and the truth is that there are fewer and fewer workers on minimum wage. Our minimum wage is so low um, that so many people have sort of just grown above and beyond it. So it's a very small share of the costs of business. So even while theoretically you could think about higher minimum wages feeding through to higher prices, it's likely a very, very small factor right now. Um, small enough not to worry about there's a broader issue, which is as prices rise, workers demand higher wages to make up for it. And often they're pretty successful at that. And the difficulty that can arise is if that then raises costs, because workers as a whole, not just minimum wage workers, but all labour, is a pretty important cost. Um, and so that is what people are worried about right now. Um, by one story, we've had a bunch of COVID-related costs that have come through and that caused one offset of price rises and that's why inflation's high and all we have to do is wait for the pandemic to be behind us and we won't get ongoing rises in costs and we therefore won't get ongoing rises in prices and inflation will fall away. That's the optimist story. The pessimist story is um, that maybe wages are starting to rise a little more and that will put more cost pressure on businesses and that will then push them to raise their prices. And if businesses raise their prices, then workers will ask for higher wages. And that's the possibility of a wage price spiral. We're not seeing that yet. Um, and it may not happen, um, but it would be irresponsible not to be at least a little bit worried about that possibility. Hmm. Uh, yeah, go ahead, Charlie. Yeah, I, I want to just amplify um, a, a couple of things that Justin has said. The, the minimum wage is so low and and. Remember, even though the minimum wage in Michigan is somewhat higher, uh, it's less than $10 an hour. And the national minimum wage, which some states do not have anything above that, that federal minimum, that's $7.25 an hour. Uh, it hasn't changed in 13 years. Uh, and that means that it's, if you adjust for the inflation that's happened in that time, it's less than it, it was by a substantial amount in real terms. So the minimum wage is really uh, a sideshow at this point. If we were to raise the minimum wage to $15, uh, uh, that, then we might be having a different conversation. Hmm. But at the very low level that the minimum wage is right now, it just affects very, very few people. And um, it, it, its effects on the macro economy are, are tiny. And I, I, I honestly think that we could raise the minimum wage a fair amount, uh, not not infinity, but we could raise it by a few dollars an hour and have really a minimal uh, dislocation in the labor market. Because you look around, you see for low-skilled jobs, seventeen dollars an hour plus mm -hmm. a bonus. Yep. So uh, that the minimum wage is not much of the of the story right now. Yeah. yeah. Uh, again, David, appreciate the call. And the question, uh, let's go to Bob and Lake Orion. Bob, I've only got about two minutes left, but uh, yeah, quickly. Yeah, I, go can, ahead. I can be real quick. I'm always curious what the effect of zero inflation or almost stagflation has had over this 18, 20 months of pandemic and whether what we're seeing is, you know, the, the high line number is a big snapback from what would have been very small incremental changes over 20 months. I'd like to hear what your guys have to say about that. Yeah, great, great question. Uh, Justin, quickly. Um, it's an interesting question. I think what we're seeing right now is just a little bit too much to be purely a snapback. There may be a bit of snapback there, but I don't think it's the whole story. Yeah. Uh, Charlie, what do you think? Yeah, I, I would agree. Um, it, it, Certainly, prices did go down uh, in for a couple of months in the spring of 2020 because everything was uh, 
was shut down. Um, uh, but then uh, now, spring of 2020 is almost two years ago, uh, and so I, I don't. I think it's partly that snapback, but it's uh, these other factors. There's plenty of money to spend, and the supply chain is just having difficulty keeping up with it. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I want to thank Justin Wolfers and uh, Charlie Ballard uh, for being here. Great explanations uh, for our listeners about uh, what they're experiencing at the stores. Thanks to both of you for being here. Thank you, Steve. Pleasure. Yeah. Okay. That is going to do it for us today. Come back tomorrow when I'm going to talk with author and economist Tim Harford about his new book, The Data Detective, 10 Easy Rules to Make Sense of Statistics. This Right Today is produced by Jake Neer and Sam Corey. Our program director is Joan Isabella. The technical director and engineer is Matthew Trevethan. And our associate producers are Amanda Duran and Chantel Phillips. Detroit Today's music is created by Sam Bobian and Will Sessions. This is 1019 WDETFM, Detroit's NPR station. Your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow.